Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 121 of the Book Cougars, Two Middle-Aged Women on the Hunt for a Good Read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And Emily wanted to kick off the episode with a poem. Yeah, it's kind of a Happy New Year poem. We were lucky enough to get copies of the new Barbara Kingsolver poetry book. Um, When we saw Barbara Kingsolver back BC, I call it, before COVID, at the 92nd Street Y, she mentioned that the next book she had coming out was a book of poetry. I didn't even know she wrote poetry. So thank you to Harper for sending us, each of us, a copy of the book. And this just seemed like a great way to kick off the new year because it's called How to Be Hopeful. How to Be Hopeful. Look, you might as well know, this device is going to take endless repair. Rubber cement, rubber bands, tapioca, the square of the hypotenuse, 19th century novels, sunrise, any of these could be useful. Also feathers. The ignition is tricky. Sometimes you have to stand on an incline where things look possible, or a line you drew yourself, or the grocery line, making faces at a toddler secretly over his mother's shoulder. You may have to pop the clutch and run past the evidence, past everyone who is praying for you. Passing all previous records is okay, or passing strange, just not passing it up. Or park it and fly by the seat of your pants. With nothing in the bank, you will still want to take the express. Tiptoe past the dogs of the apocalypse, asleep in the shade of your future. Pay at the window. You'll be surprised. You can pass off hope like a bad check. You still have time, that's the thing, to make it good. That's great. Love that. I love the first section of this book is all starts how to. So how to survive this, how to give thanks for a broken leg, how to shear a sheep, how to have a child. It's just great. I just love this collection. Again, the collection's called How to Fly in 10,000 Easy Lessons by Barbara Kingsolver. Thanks for sharing that. Sure. And this is kind of our official first episode of 2021. It is. Kind it of. It is. Yeah. yeah. Our first solo episode. Uh, we do have an interview at the end of this episode. Jason Penter, author, publisher, hashtag girl dad is with us at the yeah. end of this episode. But yeah, this is um you and I talking about what we've been reading recently. Because the last episode, it was um, about stuff we had read all over 2020. Right. Our top 10s with Russell Gray. Yeah. Which is a really fun episode. Totally. So happy 2021, everyone. We're happy to be here with each other. We have a lot to talk about. Reminder that we do have show notes. So all everything we talk about today will be in our show notes on our website, bookcougars.com. We had a kind of a fun start to the year in that we were asked to do a guest blog post for jungle red writers jungle yeah, red writers jungle writers. red writers yeah that's a joint website that seven mystery thriller writers do together and hank Philippi ryan who is our guest on a recent episode asked us to contribute a post talking about our friendship and how the podcast came to be so that was a lot of fun to think back about the early days of our relationship, our friendship, and how the podcast came to be. And really, it's been four years of just so much fun and learning and so many books. Yeah, it's been a great ride. And really, a lot of what Hank wanted to talk to us about is 
you know, how did this come to be? And then how do we make it happen? So it was fun to just reflect on that and have a chance to think about our partnership together as the book cougars. Thanks to everybody who read that blog post and commented on it. Some of the comments from that blog post were people saying that they didn't listen to podcasts. They didn't know how. Yeah. And they also said they were Luddites and, you know, which I just giggled at because if you're on a computer and on a website and doing a comment, which can be tricky on blogs, <laughs> like you are not a Luddite. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but we just wanted to remind everybody that, you know, if there are people in your life who don't listen to podcasts because they don't know how to, New Year could be a great way to start by teaching somebody how to listen to podcasts, you know, whether it's via their phone or a tablet, laptop, desktop, give somebody a, a lesson, you know, it's super easy if it's somebody you live with. And if it's not doing a Zoom call or a FaceTime call might be the way to do that because it is pretty simple. The apps that are available today, some of them are very stripped down and simple. Others are more complicated, but I think podcasts, obviously for you and I, Emily, we were podcast listeners before we became podcasters and like books on the nightstand gave us so much joy and brought us so many friends into our lives. And there's so many topics these days. So help somebody out and teach them how to listen to podcasts. Yeah, it's really a gift that keeps on giving. Lots of entertainment and hours of pleasure to be had. And if people could mention the Cougars, we would be <laughs> pleased. Uh, you know, word of mouth really is how people find us. So we would appreciate that. Absolutely. As well. And more and speaking, thank yous. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> speaking of appreciation, we've gotten several new Patreon sponsors, donors. We really appreciate you, Kathy, Heather, Julie, Katie. We also got a donation via PayPal from, from Penny Gochin. Penny's a Connecticut author who I had the pleasure of meeting at the book club bookstore several times, actually. Penny is also recently a guest on our friend John Valeri's YouTube channel, Central Booking. She was on episode 35, which was posted back in November of 2020. So it's a recent episode. Penny's a mystery writer. I have her books. I really look forward to reading them. And if you want to learn more about her before I get to reading those books, definitely check out John's interview with her on Central Booking. And thank you, Penny, for the donation. Yeah, thank you, Penny. Thank you, everyone. It really does help us keep the book cougars coming into your earbuds every other week. Yeah, thank you all. A big thank you also to our official book cougars librarian, Linda. Linda takes all of the books that we talk about and puts them onto our bookshelf within Goodreads. I looked the other day, there's 1,853 books on our bookshelf. So thank you, Linda. That is not a trivial task. Not and uh, she also is kind of the eagle eye that looks over the show notes and lets us know if there are any typos or, you know, the wrong author attributed to a book or something like that. And we really appreciate you, Linda. Yeah. Thanks, Linda. And in the December newsletter, we reached out to listeners and asked for you to send us your top 10 reads of 2020. Right. And boy, was that a huge surprise. I think, you know, we thought we'd get a couple, two or three maybe. And wow, how long is that list, Emily? It's over 200 books. Yeah. 200 titles. Unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So thank you yeah. everybody who contributed to that list. It's so 
exciting and so diverse. It really is. It's a fantastic TBR list for you. I mean, I'm here to tell you, I wanted to just prattle off a few fun statistics. Several books were, you know, mentioned more than once. And the top three that were on five listener lists were Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell, The Dutch House by Ann Patchett, and Transcendent Kingdom by Yad Yassi. Which is fantastic books. And there are some older books on that list. I know Willa Cather made an appearance with her book, Oh Pioneers, which was from the early 20th century. Yes. And there were many authors that were brought up more than once as well for their, because they have multiple books out. And the winner in that category on the list was Louise Penny, who was mentioned three times. Go Louise. Go Louise. This is for her um, Inspector Gamache, Three Pines mystery series. The three books that were mentioned were All the Devils Are Here, How the Light Gets In, and Still Life. And Still Life is the first book in the series. So that's fun to know that someone read it last year and, you know, put it on their top 10. So they have a lot more books ahead if they They sure do. Yeah. And then All the Devils Are Here is her most recent book that came out in 2020. So much fun to see people at different stages of that series. It's such a fantastic series. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so the, the list is, as we said, over 200 strong. We are happy to send it to you as a spreadsheet if you would like it, you know, on your own computer for viewing pleasure. Mm-hmm. Just email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. I've already sent out several copies of it. It's also a list within our bookshop.org page. And so you can go there and view it, read about the books, look at the authors, that sort of thing. Yeah. Thank you to Emily for putting that together. And if you make a purchase through our page, we totally appreciate it. We also encourage you to purchase through your local indie. They always appreciate your orders, but it's just a a great resource that that list will keep up at least throughout 2021. Mm -hmm as a a resource for people to go and look, because I know just scrolling through the spreadsheet, there are a lot of titles I wasn't familiar with. Some that have been on my list for a long time, like um, Wallace Stegner had two titles on that list. He's somebody that I've wanted to read, but haven't yet. I'm going to be going back to that list quite a lot, I think this year. Yeah, it really truly is. We have listeners that are good readers. It's very impressive. Not that it I'm is. surprised by Well, that. <laughs> you know, and the cool thing that I like about the, the list is that it's, you know, they're books that have been vetted by our listeners. So right. I feel like it's, they're promising all of them. Yes, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And lots and lots of nonfiction that I hadn't heard of. So if you're a nonfiction reader or want to be a nonfiction reader, great place to go to learn about some, some really high quality nonfiction. So thanks again, everybody. We really appreciate you participating. That was really fun. Yeah, thank you. So let's dive in, Emily. What are you currently reading? I am currently reading Milltown, Reckoning with What Remains by Carrie Arsenal. This is our read-along, our upcoming read-along. And I am listening to it. Carrie does narrate. And I am also reading the paper copy and really enjoying it. This is uh, Carrie's kind of both memoir and investigation, journalistic investigation of her hometown, Mexico, Maine, and a paper mill there where her generations of her family have worked. And there's a very high incidence of cancer there. So she writes about that. She writes about her 
both her early years as a kid there and currently it's it's a really fascinating read we will be talking with carrie via a zoom meeting on february 7th sunday february 7th 7 p.m eastern time couple more spots not much there's a couple more spots left if you're interested email us at bookcougars at gmail.com really looking forward to that reading the book and that discussion it's going to be great to have carrie there yeah for sure what about you I can't even say that I've actually started it, but because I just finished a book this morning, I am having in my hands The Shipping News by Annie Prue. Oh yeah, that's a great book. I love that book. This is my book club's book for January. So in the copy that I have here, it's a library book that is so it's falling apart. Um, <laughs> well loved. Yeah. It's been, it's a hardcover that has seen a lot of hands, a lot of I'm eyeballs. On it. I thought you guys only read nonfiction. Did you change? We oh, did read a lot of nonfiction one year, nonfiction by okay. women. And then this year, well, 2020 was kind of weird because there were some months we just we read short stories mm-hmm. or a, I mean, a short story for the whole month right. because, you know, nobody had the the brain space to really focus, but we wanted to get together and at least, you know, have our zoom meeting together. So that's been just a lot of fun to have, but we are starting off with this novel because it's one that we've all wanted to read and, and haven't yet. And I have no, I, I don't remember who proposed it, but I am looking forward to it because oh, she's, so she's another one of those writers I've always wanted to read, but haven't yet. Yeah. I really like her writing. Enjoy yeah. that one. That's great. Or wait, other than, did she write Brokeback Mountain? She did. She, okay. Yeah. So I have read, I've read okay. that short story by her at least. So, okay. Yeah. yeah. That was originally in um, the New Yorker. And it's amazing because it's this short story with very little dialogue. And then it was made into this beautiful movie. Yeah. You know, like a three hour movie, I think. So. Such a gorgeous yeah. movie, just yeah. beautiful in so many, so many different levels. Yeah. Yes, for sure. Yeah. I'm also reading a book of essays that's not out until April, but it's called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing by Lauren Howe. And boy, Chris, this book is making me think about you. No, oh. it's, it's a tough read. And I was actually reading it over last weekend, which happened to be my birthday weekend. And it was so hard. And I thought, you, you've you just got to stop. You've got, <laughs> got to read something happy. I mean, the essays are amazing. They're well-written, but the subject matter is really heavy. Lauren was raised in a cult, a very renowned cult. And I'll talk more about it you know, after I finish reading it. But she's also gay. And she joined the military during the period of time that was Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And so several of her essays are um, about growing up in this cult and how it affects her as an adult woman. And then also growing up in the cult as she was discovering that she was gay and then being in the military and being threatened when she was in the military. Boy, they are tough essays, really tough. I'm not very far into it. I want to say like 20%. Again, it's called Leaving Isn't the Hardest Thing Essays by Lauren Howe. And this is out. April 13th. Oh, we'll have to check that out. So just read, we are going to, we're going to go a little crazy here, y'all, because we haven't talked about what we've just read for a long time. (laughs) Well, I have four novels with me. I'm going to talk about, how about you? 
I have, I think, um, five. Okay. So why yeah. don't you go first? Okay. I'll start. So I just finished I'll, I'll start with what I just finished this morning. Finley Donovan is killing it by El Cosimano. This is out February 2nd. So just around the corner. And this was the book I decided to pick up when I needed something a little bit lighter. Elle Casimano has written several children's books. This is her first foray into an adult novel. It's a mystery. It's hilarious. The premise is that this woman, Finley, is a writer. And she meets her agent because she's very past deadline for submitting her manuscript. And they're talking through the premise of the book and kind of talking about blood and gut stuff. And someone nearby in this Panera overhears her and slips a note into her diaper bag slash purse, because she's a mom of young children, a hit. Like if she'll please kill my husband, I'll give you $50,000. <laughs> so that's kind of the premise of the book. I'm not going to spoil it because this could be, you know, be very easy to spoil this book. It's funny and it's unusual. It's not, you know, like highbrow literary fiction at all. It's just a fun romp. But she has these young children. Her husband has been unfaithful. So she has a babysitter who moves in with her. And I really like the relationship that the two of them have. Finley's sister is works is a detective with the police, which adds another good plot twist. So it's a very plot driven book. If you like books like that, I thought it was really fun. I think this book is going to do well when it comes out on February 2nd. Again, this book is called Finley Donovan is Killing It by L. Cosimano. Nice. <laughs> I miss uh, sitting in Panera talking with a friend. <laughs> oh, me too. No doubt. Yeah. The novel I'm going to talk about first is The House on Vesper Sands by Perrick O'Donnell. This book just came out January 12th. Yesterday. Yesterday, yeah. It is a historical fiction, mystery, thriller, gothic-y type novel. I really enjoyed it. One of the main characters is a young guy named Gideon Bliss. He's a Cambridge student who's an orphan who has been financed by an uncle who became his caretaker. So he's kind of funded by his uncle who is wanting to educate him, but really not, they're not connected in any way, not emotionally, not in terms of really seeing one another. Gideon goes to London once a year to visit the uncle and we find out that he gets this letter from his uncle asking him to come help him, which is so completely out of the blue and unusual. And Gideon drops everything and goes to London and his uncle can't be found. Ooh. So that is kind of the start of this novel. Actually, I should back up and say that's the beginning of Gideon in the novel, it actually starts with a woman who's a seamstress going to a mansion and being led in by a snooty butler who's not just snooty, but a jerk. We, you don't really know what's going on and you're not supposed to know what's going on. Things are mysterious. She's taken up to the top floor where she's locked into this room to do something seamstressy. <laughs> but then they think she committed suicide by jumping out the window. Mm, that's dark. from like the fourth floor right mm. but did she mm. so that kind of kicks off the action there's a, a woman who is a reporter 
who is the granddaughter of one of the wealthy newspaper men. So she's trying to, you know, fight against the patriarchy to be able to be a news reporter. She has a wealthy friend who is a lord who's actually involved in police work. So you have these different relationships. And at the heart of the novel, young women are disappearing. Mm. So in comes an inspector from Scotland Yard. He and Gideon become a team by accident. The beginning for me was more engaging than kind of towards the, you know, where you think the big climax is going to be happening. That wasn't as climaxy for me as I was hoping. <laughs> Hmm. Oh, that's another risque way of saying something. Um, (laughs) But it it ends up being a really good novel. I enjoyed it. I'm happy I read it. This guy who wrote it, O'Donnell, apparently he's written some other dark historical mysteries. So if you like historical fiction, gothic-y type books, it's in London. I don't know if I did say London, late 19th century. You should totally check out The House on Vesper Sands by Parak O'Donnell. It is out now from Tin House. Right on. Another book I read was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh my gracious, y'all. This book (laughs) destroyed me. It is the winner of the Women's Prize for Fiction in 2020. It's the book I just said at the beginning of the podcast was one of the most mentioned uh, favorites for our listeners and their top tens of the year. It's a fictionalized account of William Shakespeare and his wife, Agnes, and their three kids, Susanna, Hamnet, and Judith. Hamnet and Judith are twins. Hamnet is who Shakespeare's play Hamlet is based on, because Shakespeare did have a son, Hamnet, who passed away as a young child. It's during the plague. It focuses less on Shakespeare and more on his wife, Agnes, and from where she came as a child, her upbringing, and then her life as his wife and the mother of his children. There's a lot of, you know, Maggie O'Farrell does refer in the book to the fact that she took quite a bit of artistic license. Mm. There are things that are known about Shakespeare's family and things that are not known. And she did a lot of filling in of the gaps. It deals very much with grief you know, in a mother's loss of her son. There are scenes where she is imagining what her son would have been like as a grown man Mm. that are so poignant and just, I mean, I could not put this book down when I was reading it. Literally, like anyone who came into a room and talked to me, like nothing was going to happen. I could not stop. I couldn't take my eyes off the page. It's so beautifully written. I really recommend this book so much. What's funny is I've seen some people who I have very similar reading tastes as who have not enjoyed it. Oh, interesting. So I don't know if it's because it's so steeped in motherhood that, you know, that if that's not appealing to you, then this book wouldn't appeal. Or if there's something about the style of the writing, this is my first Maggie O'Farrell book. And I really enjoyed it. And I think I'll look to some of her other writing. She's prolific and has many other books. Boy, was it a heartbreaker, but I enjoyed it very much, despite my heart being broken. (laughs) Funny how books do that. (laughs) Yes, exactly. The name of the book is Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Oh, that sounds so good. I've seen so many people, Goodreads friends who enjoyed that one. So the next book I'm going to talk about is one that completely 
came out of nowhere for me. I, it wasn't on my radar. I didn't, I hadn't heard anybody ever talking about it. Although when I looked at the cover, it rang a bell. I was looking for other things when this book popped up. It's The Archivist, a novel by Martha Cooley. It came out in 2008. So it's been around. The cover is a stack of books. So that I remember seeing that cover. But uh, what captured me was the premise. The description talks about a guy who's an archivist who is in charge of these papers that were love letters written by T.S. Eliot that were donated by his love interest, Emily Hale, in I think like 1959 or 60, uh, donated to the library with the restriction that the public is not allowed to see them until 2020. And I thought, ooh, is that true? I didn't know at the time when I started reading it. I just thought it was an interesting premise that this man was in charge of these letters. So it turns out the novel is actually about so much more. It's very deep about relationships, particularly between husbands and wives, and religion, particularly about Christianity and Judaism. So the the character of the archivist or one of the archivists, because there are multiple meanings, is a man named Matt who did not, so I should say back up even more, he comes of age, they marry around World War II. So he did not go to fight in the war because he has a bad back. He's Christian, although not part of any community really, and she's Jewish, also not really part of any community and they're kind of the heart of the novel. He doesn't really have guilt about not going to, to fight because really they have nothing to do with the war while it's going on. It's after the war is over and the atrocities of the Holocaust start coming out that they start to really fragment as a couple and as individuals because the wife, Judith, becomes quite understandably obsessed with learning about what happened to Jews in Europe during World War II and the Nazi regime. She starts clipping all the articles she can find about it and she has files. So she's becoming an archivist Mm. of the news that's coming out about the Holocaust as people are discovering more. And he starts, she's also a poet, so she's a very sensitive person. Matt, on the other hand, you know, he kind of wants things just to stay the way they have been. He wants to live in his own little world for the most part and he can't but he starts making decisions for her that in the end are have consequence, let's just say. So it's in a lot of ways about misreading, about misreading people and about putting your own thoughts onto people and your own beliefs onto people and who has better beliefs. Paralleling their relationship is T.S. Eliot and his wife and then his, not even his mistress, but his love interest, Emily Hale. There are also other relationships that enter into the book. It is a little bit confusing about who's who and what's going on sometime and what the time frame is. So you, it starts um, mainly World War II and shortly after that, uh, even before that with the jazz age in New York, uh, Judith's adopted parents are really into jazz. So there's a lot of jazz music, musicians mentioned. And then there's the couple from the, the 19-teens who become radicalized and go to Europe to try and do something over there in the communist movement. It's a wild novel. At times, I didn't like it Mm. because none of the characters are particularly appealing. 
Matt himself, like I just wanted to shake him or hit him with a two by four at times. After something happens, he leaves New York to become an archivist. He's kind of complacent in his life, very much a creature of habit. And in walks this really sexy young graduate student who wants access to T.S. Eliot's letters before they're released to the public. Mm. And she reminds him of his wife. And in the end, I tell you, if there's a listener out there who's, who's read this book, I really want to talk to somebody because things happen in this book that I don't believe would have happened. I think they were completely against what the character would have done. Mm. But mm. then this book is about so many different layers of betrayal. Mm. You know, there's relationship betrayal, parental betrayal, self-betrayal. It's a fascinating book. Like I said, I didn't particularly like it at times, but it was so compelling that I kept reading because well, I wanted to know what was going to happen. Right. So there was something yeah. about the plot that was, it's funny because when you first started talking about it, I thought it was nonfiction. So oh, it's yeah. fiction, but yeah. Yeah. It's total mm. fiction. It's very much about, like I said, relationships, poetry, jazz music, family, and what happens to people in really hard situations yeah. when they yeah. kind of don't want to be bothered. Mm. Mm. again that's the archivist by martha cooley email us at bookcougars at gmail.com if you want to talk to chris about it <laughs> <laughs> well over the holidays i needed a cupcake book so i read a cupcake book literally it's called meet me at the cupcake cafe nice by, <laughs> by jenny colgan jenny colgan's a very prolific author apparently but i've never read her i literally was having a really hard day and just said i want to read about cupcakes and got on uh, one of the library websites and found this one and it was available it's British, which I loved. And it's about the character Issy, who's working in kind of like a high rise business setting for a bunch of jerks. And she gets laid off. That's how the story starts. And she comes from a family where her grandfather, who for the most part raised her, owned a bakery. So she grew up in a bakery and um, decides to go out on her own and open her own bakery and starts out, you know, trying to get financing from a local banker who ends up being a character in the book, a really fun character. And her grandfather, it's that part's very heartwarming because he's in a care facility. I was not quite sure if he was suffering from dementia or Alzheimer's, but he would be, send her letters with recipes from his bakery that she would then utilize as she was developing her menu for her new bakery. So it really takes you through her trials and tribulations of getting the money to open up her own store, find a storefront, the cast of characters that are always drawn to a restaurant slash, you know, bakery, her employees, her love life, her roommate's love life, <laughs> the asshole boyfriend, because, you know, why not? <laughs> Um, but that part, you know, at first I was like, oh, that's such a trope, the asshole boyfriend. But then, you know, sometimes I think what that character imparts to a novel is the protagonist's ability to see, you know, at first they can't see what's right in front of them and what all of the friends see and all of that. But then it allows that plot point of finding someone who is kind and nice and all of that. So it's 
a very predictable novel. It was like comfort food for me, literally and figuratively. I really enjoyed it. There are recipes. There's one character in the book that's a health zealot and she brings in these really nasty hockey puck cupcakes and she even has the recipe in the book but then in the acknowledgments she says you know I stand by all of these recipes except for that one which I (laughs) gave me a good giggle so if you're looking for something really light with a few you know some British humor involved I recommend this book again it's called meet me at the cupcake cafe by Jenny Colgan nice well I also read a book with an asshole boyfriend (laughs) I read (laughs) Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. I'm so excited. (laughs) Yeah. So for those of you who might be new to the podcast, Alice Hoffman is Emily's favorite writer. Yes. And I had never read anything by Alice Hoffman. And I wanted to start with this book that is 25 years old. The, The edition I have is its 25th anniversary. Oh my gosh. This is the book I wanted to start the year with because I've just heard so much so many good things about it that it's a fun novel and then you know I got hijacked by the archivist (laughs) but (laughs) this was a great way to to get my mind out of that other book Practical Magic is about the Owens sisters who come from a long line of witches in New England the first Owens woman came over from England following a man who she loved she's not in this book she's kind of mentioned in there although she does kind of preside over the book in some ways as like this you know foundational matriarch right but it's really about Jillian and Sally these two sisters who we meet them as kids in the book and they grow up to become young women they were raised by their aunts they're just called the aunts they do have names eventually but these two sisters who were the aunts who live in the house that the the matriarch had built back in what the 1600s they still live in the same house that seems to have magical qualities and they just can't wait to get up and leave you know to start their own lives and to get away from the ants a lot of it is about their struggles as adults it would sally initially because she does have two kids and then you see their her kids her two daughters growing up and coming into their early adulthood so all in all it was just a fun read about women who are trying to figure it out who happen to have some of these witchy talents that are not things that they necessarily invoke you know they do use herbs and things like that but it's it's not like this is completely about the magic necessarily like the practical magic I think so much of it is relating to the love and relationships that sisters and women have together yeah you know what I mean yeah I mean I know it's been a long time since you've read this one Mm -hmm. but I really loved it I enjoyed every page of it and at first you know the the writing quality it has a little bit of that fairy tale style it's very simple and it's kind of taking you along and along but there is fucking in this book mm-hmm. so don't be thinking it's a good bedtime story for your 6 year old or anything like that definitely not <laughs> <laughs> i enjoyed this book there were times when i laughed out loud and there are times when I got a little weepy. Mm. It had everything in it. And yeah. um, there are two other books in this family saga, I guess you could call it. Um, the Rules of Magic 
came after this one. And then the third book just came out recently. What was that one titled? I don't remember. Magic Lessons. Okay. Magic Lessons. Yeah. So I'm definitely going to read those other two books, probably in order of publication, because the most recent book goes back to that first Owens woman who came uh, to the colonies. Right. And it's so funny. I have to say, you know, I'm just been giddy knowing that Chris is reading this book, but we posted on social media because it was one of her Friday reads books. And people had a lot of opinions about (laughs) her reading it. And, you know, maybe don't start with this one, start with the other ones, or this one isn't my favorite. The other ones are my favorite. And so, you know, I just made it clear to everyone. It just means Chris has to read all three. I mean, hands down, that's what she has to do. (laughs) Totally. And I'm gonna, you know, so, so there you have it. Uh, And one of the things, you know, there, there is an asshole boyfriend at one point. There's also other men that are mentioned in the book, uh, but women are the primary characters for the most part. But one of the small stories that's in there is about a boy slash man who was ruined by never being challenged to change. And I thought that was one of the the sad things. And it just made me really think about so much, you know, of what we're seeing about white male rage. Mm-hmm. It made me think about that, that one character that he was never challenged. Mm-hmm. He was always told he was right and he was the best. And whatever he did was perfect. And he ends up having a, a bad end. But then the people around him see like, oh, maybe if we had challenged him, things could have been different. But that is again, just a small, tiny sliver of a story in an overall great read about three generations of two sisters each. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Loved it. Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman. Yay. I'm so glad you read that. Well, the book that I ushered in the new year with is called Group, How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life by Christy Tate. I always like to start the new year with a nonfiction, and this one did not disappoint at all. Um, The premise of the book is that Christy Tate, she's someone who's really suffering when the book starts. She has a very severe eating disorder and she's bulimic and has been for years. And she goes to a 12-step program, very similar to AA. It's an Overeaters Anonymous, I guess. Is that Mm -hmm. what it would be called, right? Mm -hmm. And the principles of the 12-step program is very much about anonymity. You know, you go to these meetings, everything you say is to be held in confidence with the people in the room. She decides that she needs more therapy than just her 12-step program. So she starts seeing a therapist that does group therapy. So she walks into this room and it's, I want to say, I think it's six other people. And the core difference from the very beginning is that there is no confidentiality here. You cannot keep any secrets. You, everything you say, the people who are in therapy with you can talk about to the people in their lives that's fucked up well it's not it's because his feeling is that if you hold secrets keeping secrets is toxic and then it allows you to hold on to the shame that's just his theory it's not for everybody yeah but that's what aa is you go through the steps and you get your secrets out but within that group whereas well usually with just a sponsor when you're doing the steps you know Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That just sounds dicey to me. 
That well, just I, sounds like a lot of blackmail potential. Well, I mean, I think there is an agreement that is struck in this room with these people that it's, you know, it is your, this is your group. And so what he does is he gives you assignments. So like for her, a lot of her shame, you know, there were obviously reasons why she was having these struggles with food. And so one of her, her very first assignment was that he paired her with one of the other attendees and said, you will call at the end of the day and report what you ate. And there's no comment from the person that you called. It's just that it's a report. Mm -hmm. And again, it takes the secretiveness out of the behavior, right? And she does, this book goes across years and years and years where she's in this same group with people and, you know, a new member might come in or leave, but it's a very small core group. And so for years, she picks up the phone, calls this person and reports what she eats. Another member of the group, um, she calls and they just give her like an affirmation at the end of every day. So it's really interesting because what he's doing is building this core group of people who are your people, you know, your core, your rocks that you can count on. And what she's searching for is normalcy and a family and the life that she dreams of having. But some of these things that she's suffering with are preventing her from being able to accomplish that. So the book is not for the faint of heart. There's a lot of sex in it. There's a lot of, you know, what I said kind of about the cupcake cafe about, you know, people don't always see what's right in front of them. She makes a lot of missteps and the people in her group see it and they call her on it. Eventually she does learn how to share intimacy and be vulnerable. And that's really the core of what we need in our relationships. Some people who reviewed this book have some of your same trepidation, Chris, and just felt like this therapist should go to jail, you know, and others like me. I mean, I loved it. I thought it was really, really well written. She's a lawyer by trade. When we first meet her at the beginning of the book, she's in law school. She's at the top of her class and she's, you know, suffering from a lot of emotional trials and tribulations mm -hmm. and you see through the course of the book she graduates she gets a job they help her figure out the job thing because she's she self-sabotages a lot she has self-esteem issues she's one of those people that you take a look at her and you're like you have everything you're the smartest person in the room you're beautiful you know why do you keep making these choices that are making your life more difficult mm -hmm. and so by being a part of this group it really helps her to get past a lot of those problems. Interesting. What were you say? Oh, I'm just going to say like, it, it sounds to me like, I, you know, the thing about uh, like Alcoholics Anonymous, that anonymity is about not talking about who you see in those rooms. Like you talk about everything in those rooms. Like, you mm -hmm. know, you let it all hang out usually to your comfort level, but the anonymity is about not telling outsiders, mm -hmm. you know? So like, whoever you are, if you're famous or not famous, you should be comfortable going to an AA meeting and not have your stuff, you know, drug out in public. So I'm not sure like what the, you know, I don't know, like to me, it sounded maybe like a misunderstanding hmm. when I initially said what I said, but there is an AA, you're not supposed to do crosstalk, which is commenting on other people's stories or telling them what to do. Like you're not supposed to do that at all in 
AA meetings, but in group, when I, I have had like group therapy before where you do sign a paper saying you are not going to talk about what happens in the group outside of the group. Mm-hmm. And then everybody knows everybody's stuff. So I don't know, like, I'm I'm not really sure what the difference is. Yeah, I mean, maybe I misrepresented it a little bit. I mean, his point was, the therapist's point was, you can't come to group and not talk and not tell people what's going on. Like, that's not allowed. No secrets with the group. How she compared it to the 12-step program she was a part of was that you didn't have to tell people what was happening with you. You know, I mean, that wasn't necessarily a requirement that you didn't have to tell them all the aspects of your life, you know, whereas this in the group, it was like, you were going to lay it bare. We are going to see you hit bottom and we're going to help you back up. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I don't think, um, I mean, every AA meeting is different and there are some that are healthier, more healthy than others. There are some that are definitely not healthy places, but I do think it's really good to have professional guidance. Yeah, and I think that's yeah. what a lot of people who are in these free support groups actually need. Um, mm-hmm. But at least the free support groups are available because unfortunately, you know, therapy is not covered by a lot of. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, one of the things that was funny in the, her acknowledgments, which were great, she said, you know, to Dr. So-and-so, you know, I've paid you enough for you to purchase your own private yacht over the years. <laughs> Cause I mean, it's pretty amazing. It, she, there's a point where she um, joins a second group. So she's spending like three hours a week in these therapy groups for years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a lot of time I and mean, she's a high power attorney and a ton of money. I mean, she talks about that. Yeah. So, you know, I had this image of her therapist, you know, floating around in the water somewhere on the yacht with her name on the back. <laughs> but, but anyway, it was a good book. I really enjoyed it. It was perfect for me to kick off the new year group, How One Therapist in a Circle of Strangers Saved My Life by Christy Tate. Very cool. Sounds very intriguing. So my next book, and I guess this is my fourth novel I'm talking about. I read Country Place by Anne Petrie. Oh, oh you finished it. my God. Such Yay. an amazing, amazing novel. It's very different from The Street, which was uh, Petri's first novel, which was such a huge hit. Country Place didn't land as big. It didn't make as big of a splash. But one of the theories is that, um, so Anne Petri's was African-American and The Street was about an African-American single mom in Harlem. Country Place is about primarily white people in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, which is a small seaside town. There's a foreword by Farah Jasmine Griffin, and she talks about how like Petri broke the taboo of uh, being an African-American writing about primarily white characters. And oh my God, one of the brilliant things about this novel, I feel, is that she hits white rage so squarely on the head. Mm. There's a character, I won't say too much about the character. I'm just going to read you this quote and I'm changing the pronoun, um, but it's a character who says, blah, 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 cheated out of the things that were rightfully theirs. They had always been cheated, but not anymore. So like this person is raging against these things that they feel they've been, that have been taken from them, that they've been cheated from, but like, there's no basis in reality that anything has been taken. 
you know, like mm-hmm. this person hasn't done anything to earn anything. That's just a tiny snippet. But when I was reading it, I was just like, oh my God, this is like the white rage that so many people talk about. It's like the book I have been praising so much, Mediocre, about mediocre white men thinking that they're deserved these things and they're pissed now that, you know, they're not getting it. So I really feel like this book was way ahead of its time. Hmm. The gist of the story is there's a young man named Johnny Roan who's coming home from the war. The novel is set in 1946. I should say it came out in 1947. He comes home and he is so full of hope. He just, you know, you can just feel his excitement of taking the train and, you know, stepping out onto the platform as he gets home to say, uh, it's called Lennox in the book. And he just, you know, he's been imagining what it was going to be like. And he's built so much up in his head. And the guy who picks him up, who's the taxi driver, whose name is the weasel, <laughs> just he's this character that's just so vile, but he's the taxi driver and he is very observant and he notices things and he knows things because he sees things. He just says a couple things. And by the time the car, the taxi ride is over, Johnny is already paranoid. His excitement has been diminished. From that initial scene, like, you know, stuff is going to be going downhill. And it's it is interesting because I remember in the street, you talked about like the initial scene really grabs you right away. So she's really good with that, it sounds like. Yes, she's really good at that. And so one of the criticisms with the book was that it wasn't about race is what contemporary reviewers had said. And when you think about the the novel, The Street, which is a fantastic novel, but it is also what you, and this sounds really trite and stereotypical, but it's a novel you would expect an African-American woman to write about an African-American woman's experience. Like there's there's really nothing surprising. Mm. You feel like it's so contemporary though. But so did this book, A Country Place, even though, you know, she wrote it in 1947. So Johnny is one of the main characters and he's coming home from war. And when Johnny comes marching home again, like you can't help make that association from the Civil War. There is a wealthy woman in town, Mrs. Gramby, who lives in the big house. And now Mrs. Gramby is like 82 and she's portrayed as, you know, really ancient and old. She has, she's a white woman who has a maid who is African-American, a gardener who is Portuguese, and then a cook who I think might be French. I'm not really sure, um, just from the descriptions. So there, there are those, you know, racial elements. There's also a lawyer in town who's Jewish, who nobody outrightly does anything to him but you can sense and their words said between the white guys who were looking at him that they don't want him in town. You know, they especially don't want him to get comfortable and have his kind come to town. So you see like the prejudices of this, the kind of the small minded little town. And you can't help but think of, you know, some of the classic American stories about small town life and how closed minded and bigoted everybody is. But I think it's deeper than that. I really do. I think she does a great job of exploring the relationships. She's definitely looking at the dark side of people's lives in this town. But what builds around the story is the hurricane of 1938. So the storm is slowly building while all this is happening. It only covers three days. 
but it goes back and forth in time a little bit too. And it's just a fantastic novel, a brilliant story. And I highly recommend it. I mean, I would almost say I like the country place more than the street. If I had to, if I had to make a distinction, (laughs) they're both brilliant in their own ways, but I do hope more people pick up country place. It is not a happy novel. I couldn't put it down though. I was riveted to the page. I mean, I read it in I think two days. I was going to say, because last time I talked to you, you were just going to start it. So Well, and this morning, like I, I picked it up this morning and I'm reading and Laura comes in. She's like, did you feed the dogs? Cause I usually feed them in the morning. I'm like, oh my God, no, I'm sorry. I did it. <laughs> so the poor dogs were starving because I was so engaged in the novel. Um, really, really loved it. And I'm going to be thinking about this for a long time. That was uh, Country Place by Anne Petrie. Well, my book um, was written by a local author as well. Anne Petrie lived in Old Saybrook, which is just a you know few towns down from where we live in Guilford. I read a book of short stories called Come to Me by Amy Bloom. Amy Bloom actually lives in the town I'm sitting in right now. So, um, <laughs> And this is a short story collection written way back in 1993. Two of them were in consecutive years of the best American Mm -hmm. short story collection, 1991 and 92. Amy Bloom is a therapist by trade. And these stories really read that way. I mean, she covers a lot of territory like infidelity, sisters, breaking engagements, Mm -hmm. seduction, death, suicide. I mean, as I was reading them, I was like, wow, these are all probably things she hears, you know, on the other side of the couch. And some of them, the stories are, can be really shocking, but yet believable, Mm -hmm. which is what life is. Right. Right. I mean, the stories were really steeped in real life, I thought. And I I don't mean that in a like non-fiction-y kind of way. I mean, they're definitely stories, but the twists and turns were really unusual. I've never read short stories like this. And they're not unusual in a George Saunders kind of, you know, uh, strange way. It's just kind of the whole idea of life is stranger than fiction. You know, that saying. it was kind of like that. I really like her writing. The only other book I've read, I've wanted to read her because she, you know, I walk past her house. I mean, I want (laughs) to actually stalk her and become a friend, but I'm not quite sure how to accomplish that. <laughs> but, you know, I think we both, didn't we both read the book, her novel about Eleanor Roosevelt? I did not. The What I read that she's associated with was New Haven Noir, that collection of short stories that she edited. Oh, that's right. That's yeah. right. Um, Which well, is a great collection of short stories, by the way. Was it the White House? The White Houses. Yeah, Yeah, I just wanted to look that up, which I really enjoyed. So if you're looking for a nice short story collection, it is an older collection. I found it at our library, probably because she's a local author. I don't know Mm -hmm. if it would be easy to find. But again, the collection was called Come to Me by Amy Bloom. That's so cool. You know, come to think of it, um, with the Anne Petrie novel, you can see on the spine, it says the Petrie collection. And this is actually from the Acton Library in Old Saybrook. I got an interlibrary loan. So local authors yeah. <laughs> at their local library. We're so lucky. We are indeed. So next up, Biblio Adventures. I only had one. It was kind of a dry season. I think, um, you know, a lot of things take a break over the holidays, but we watched a movie 
1993, that seems to be the year of things for me, In the Name of the Father, starring Daniel Day-Lewis and a very young Emma Thompson. Oh, wow. It's based on a, the book Proved Innocent, the story of Jerry Conlon of the Guildford Four by Jerry Conlon. Huh. And it's, you know, the time of the troubles in Ireland and um, Daniel Day-Lewis plays Jerry Conlon, who was wrongly convicted of a crime of blowing up a bar in Guildford um, in England. And it's very much a father and son movie and uh, really sad, very well acted. It reminded me that I really want to get back to reading the book Say Nothing, which I had mm. started listening to. It was on one of our listeners' top 10 for last year. That's about the troubles. It's a nonfiction book. I think in 2019, it was one of the New York Times top 10 books of the year. I enjoyed it. You know, the gentleman caller is an Irishman. So he was interested in watching it. I think he had watched it years ago. I'd never seen it. So it's an oldie. We got it out from the library. Again, it was called In the Name of the Father a 1993 film with Daniel Day-Lewis. Nice. I'm still waiting to get all of Kittredge. I haven't had a chance, but one of our listeners did tell us that it's worth it. She reached out. Thank you for giving me a shot in the arm to go and find it from the library. Well, I didn't have any Biblio adventures that I can think of. And my calendar, I don't even know already what happened to my 2020 calendar. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> Well, what about upcoming? I have an exciting upcoming adventure. It's going to be passed by the time this episode airs on Tuesday, but I want to tell everyone about it because it's the author Matthew Dix, who I've had the occasion to meet at a booktopia and he, his new book, The Other Mother, launched yesterday. So it's nice. available now. And he has his book launch. It's going to be a Zoom book launch on Saturday. So I registered to go. I will definitely, um, in the next episode, if they recorded it, I'll let you know. I'm not sure. It's one of those event bright events. So I'm not sure if they'll record it or if it's just going to be live. Okay. Oh, cool. Well, I have an upcoming event, a couple of them. The 21st of January at 7 p.m. Eastern time. The author of Yale Needs Women, Ann Gardner Perkins, is going to be doing a Zoom event through Breakwater Books. So I look forward to that. Yale Needs Women is about the first class that allowed women into Yale. And they're going to have two of the women from that class present at the wow, event. Cool. Yeah. That sounds great. I can't yeah. wait to hear about it. Now, then also that Jane Smiley event that I was looking forward to, um, that got pushed back. So that event is now going to be January 28th, but not until 10 p.m. our time. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's kind of a late one. And that is through Copperfield's books and their Pacific time. So for you Pacific Coast people, it's at 7 p.m., which is quite a humane time to have an event. Just get your jammies on and go for it. I've done that a couple of times. It's kind of fun. Yeah. <laughs> jammies and a cup of, tea, cup of tea. I even did that one bathtub adventure. Remember, that's not for everybody, right. but that did work. So. <laughs> Upcoming reads? I do. I do have a, a copy of A Thousand Acres by Jane Smiley in my hands. That event that I just mentioned is for her new book, 
but I've always wanted to read this one, A Thousand Acres. So I did get a library copy and this is on my upcoming reads as is The Survivors by Jane Harper, her new one. I'm so excited. Our friend Kate sent me an advanced reader copy. So nice. super excited about that. This book is coming out in February, February 2nd to be exact. So if you are a Jane Harper fan, pre-order it now. And if you're not a Jane Harper fan, get her prior books and read them because you will become a fan. She writes really great atmospheric mysteries set in Australia because that's where she's from. Right on. I have uh, an upcoming read for my book club, Cuyahoga by Pete Beatty. I don't really know anything about it and I kind of want to go into it that way. I have both the paper copy and the audiobook, so I plan nice. to do both. It has that really cool cover with a with axes and um, the Cuyahoga is a river that goes through Ohio. So I definitely am familiar with that having been born and raised there. And um, I think it's a story about two brothers and that's really all I know. I wanna go into it kind of blind. Mm -hmm. And then I also have a book that one of our listeners sent to us. It's called Still Crazy by Judy Prescott Marshall. She wins the award for sending books. She sent one to both of us. She signed it and I'm holding this up for Chris. We both got a lovely spot of tea with it. What a nice idea. She just slipped, you know, a little packaged good tea. I'm a tea drinker, a Harney and Sons tea, which is lovely. So I'm looking forward to making a, a cup of tea and cracking this novel, nice. um, which is, I believe it's about love and infidelity in a marriage. Mm. So that has me, my curiosity peaked from the start. So thank you, Judy, for sending us copies of your book and tea and a lovely card as well, I must say. Yeah, thank you. All right, everybody. Well, coming up next is our conversation with Jason Pinter. His new book is out. It just came out earlier this week, Tuesday. A Stranger at the Door. It's the second book in the Rachel Marin thriller series. The first book is Hideaway. Right. Um, Chris and I both read Hideaway and I read Stran A Stranger at the Door. I love Rachel Marin. She's my new favorite badass <laughs> single mom yeah. protagonist. What's cool is that it's, you know, if you're looking for a new series, it's only two in, you know, sometimes I know when you come across a series and you're like, oh my God, there's 14 books in the series. Like, you know, it's kind of hard to take that first step. Yeah. Because there are so true. many ahead. But then again, that's part of the joy of getting hooked on a series is that you can really, especially an older series, because you can just kind of binge read, right? As right. We binge watch these days. Yeah, that's absolutely true. It's a good way of thinking of it. We both highly recommend this series. And Jason's just a great guy. We had a wonderful conversation. We hope you enjoy it. So we'll see you again sometime. Yeah, in a couple of weeks. <laughs> Until then, we wish you lots of happy, happy reading. reading.
We are so excited today to talk with Jason Pinter. Jason is an author and the founder of the independent publisher Polis Books, which he launched in 2013. In the fall of 2019, Jason created the imprint Agora, which focuses on diverse crime fiction. In addition to being a writer and publisher, he's also worked as an agent, editor, and in marketing. To date, he's written eight books for adults and two for children. His Henry Parker series includes five novels, two of which have been Indie Next picks, and several have been nominated for awards such as the Thriller Award, the Strand Critics Award, and the Seamus Award, to name just a few. His standalone thriller, The Castle, has sold over one million copies worldwide in over a dozen countries. Jason's new writing adventure is the Rachel Martin series, Hideaway, the first book in the series, came out in March 2020. Emily gave it a glowing review back on episode 99 at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I just started reading it this morning and it was, I, I was pained to have to put it down and get back <laughs> to work. Um, <laughs> book two in the series, A Stranger at the Door, will be coming out January 12th, 2021. And in addition to all of this, Jason is also hashtag girl dad welcome jason <laughs> <laughs> Thank, thanks for having me i'm not sure which which job takes priority there it probably has to be girl dad i'd probably have to say that but uh <laughs> <laughs> yes and, and you're you know we were before we all um made this official and started recording we were asking jason you know what what hashtag girl dad does with the girls in a time like this when he has to be on video and um, I jokingly asked if they hide hide their children in the closet when when they have to do Zoom meetings, but we're lucky to be in a district where kids are actually at school. So. Yeah, well, uh, was it about a week and a half ago? I was doing a panel for a uh, conference, a convention called New England Crime Bake, mm -hmm. and I was on a panel. That I think that started around seven o'clock at night. So my older daughter doesn't go to bed until eight eight thirty. So about half of the panel, all of a sudden, my older daughter walks into the room, sits on my lap, and proceeds to just sit in another panel with me. <laughs> so that's that's the new normal. Yes, exactly. Yeah. We're all adjusting to uh, working at home and being on Zoom meetings. Well, we're so excited to have you here today. Could you tell the listeners just a little bit about the two series that you have? Yeah, so the current series is uh, the Rachel Marin series. Uh, the first book, Hideaway, came out earlier this year, literally like right as the pandemic was starting. Um, my book tour got canceled while I was on tour, uh, which is certainly something I can tell the grandkids one day. Um, <laughs> I had a, a launch in, uh, in Hoboken, New Jersey, and then a launch in uh, Manhattan. And then I uh, did, was able to do two events uh, in Scottsdale and in Dallas. Uh, and then I flew to San Diego for a convention, and literally the convention got shut down before it started. So I tell everyone I flew, literally flew to San Diego for a turkey club sandwich. <laughs> so yeah, so that book came out. Thankfully, uh, the readers have really embraced the series, and now the new book in the series, come, uh, Stranger at the Door, comes out January 12th. Before the Rachel Marin series, I wrote the Henry Parker series, which was five books, uh, The Mark, The Guilty, The Stolen, The Fury in the Darkness. Um, that ended a little while ago. Yeah, so those are the two series that I have. The Rachel Marin is the one that's sort of ongoing as, as we speak. But uh, yeah, and then I've done one standalone and then a couple children's books. And yeah, I just, I'm, I'm very thankful to be able to, to do what I love. So tell us why you decided to start a series with a badass female protagonist. I mean, the way you asked that question, it should be obvious. <laughs> I mean, it's a badass female protagonist. Um, no, actually, you know, it's funny. 
I don't think I thought of Rachel as badass when I started writing it. I sort of wanted a character that was forced to protect herself and her children because if you know if you, if you read Hideaway, basically the story start the story starts out with something horrible happening to her family uh, that basically breaks her family apart, and she's forced to essentially restart her life with her two young children. So she moves to a new town with her children with every intention of flying under the radar and staying quiet. Um, and she ends up having to, you know, renege on that. But the, the idea was that she, and she sort of trains her mind and body to become a protector for herself and her children. So she wasn't a badass in the typical sense. She's not sort of Jack Reacher where she's going out, you know, hunting down trouble and beating up bad guys. She never wanted to be a part of any of this. She was forced to do that because of circumstances. She's sort of like a reluctant badass, I would say. Um, but I really want to write a character that was smart and capable, but also very vulnerable and broken in some ways. You know, if, if you read this book and you read the next book, she's very capable and very smart and very loving, but doesn't always make the best decisions because she's sort of the kind of person who, because she's decided to take care of everybody else, has never really taken the time to take care of herself. And that plays a role in, in both books so far. So you know, Rachel is, I think she, I love her. I love her character. I love the stories. I love the surrounding characters. And it's, it's been a blast to write. Well, she's a mother, right? So that's also yes. kind of what you said is the definition of motherhood, sadly. Exactly. Is, you know, often you are the last person that you take care of as the mother. So. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I'm, I'm a, we have, uh, my wife and I, we have two young children. We have a two-year-old and a three-year-old. Another reason for writing the book is that as much as I do everything in my power for my kids and I, I, consider myself a pretty, you know, hands-on dad in every way, there's a bond between, I think, the mother and child that a father can never fully understand just from certain perspectives. You know, my wife has said, you know, you'll never understand what it's like to grow something inside of you and then see it outside of you. Right. And as much as I love my kids, I will never understand that fully. So I think that's why it was important for Rachel to be a mother because there's just a bond between her and her children that I think adds another layer and a, another sense of depth to that and what and that what she's willing to do for her children. Yeah, it's a very primal relationship. So yes, did you, exactly. you know, writing from a female perspective, I think you do it really well. Do, Thank you. Do that you means a lot. Um, tap your wife on the shoulder and run things past her? <laughs> or that's something that's really natural for you. Um, I, I, so one of the things that was important to me for this book is that, you know, fortunately I, I have a, a good fair number of, besides my wife, I have female friends and colleagues and other writers who I can speak to. But it was important that, that Rachel's a single mother in this book. And I didn't want to write about a single mother from sort of a, a casual perspective. So I actually spoke to single mothers about what that was like. Because I think there's a very big difference between being a mother and a single mother because being a mother, you have no time. Being a single mother, you have even less time. So you're literally giving up every sense of yourself in terms of there's nobody else who's going to take half the duties. There's nobody else who's going to, you know, watch the kids one night when you go out for drinks with the girls or, or what's it like to date or be in a relationship as a single mother. So I spoke to other women who had been through this and who had children to see like, what are the hardships? What are the specific things? What were the instances that made it worth it? And I tried to work some of that into the book to really make it feel like this character was as authentic as it could be. So I did speak to a lot of women to try to understand that from an emotional perspective. Yeah, well, yeah. you're preaching to the choir with Emily, yeah. as, who was a single mom with two kids herself. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, I, I'd see true warriors. It's, it's, a, it's really amazing. Um, it's really wonderful. 
You know, it's interesting though, because there's also a little bit of a hardness that you get, you know, and I really saw that in the character of Rachel Marin because it's almost an inhuman task to be a single yeah. mom. And then to be a single mom that faces challenges like she does, yeah. you know, you just, it's a, it's a, an, a hard treadmill to explain to other people. Yeah. But you did a really great job, Jason, with the book. Thank I'm you. really impressed. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, Rachel very much has, Rachel very much has her guard up both because of her personal situation, but then exacerbated by the trauma that she's been through. So, I mean, she has a, a tank shell around her. And that's sort of one of the things I want to delve into is that she doesn't necessarily want it there, but she doesn't have a reason to let her guard down. And there's certain things that happen in this book and the next book that maybe give her a reason to want to lower her guard a little bit, but it, but she struggles with that. Yeah. Right, right. Well, even in the, oh, sorry, Emily. No, go ahead. I was just gonna say, even in the, the very beginning, and this is not a spoiler or anything, you know, um, it's chapter one before um, anything hairy happens and she's, at home, she's making dinner for the family. There's a, a baby at home, a six-year-old out, husband not home from work yet. And, you know, she's somebody who was planning to become a lawyer or a doctor in college and then got pregnant right after yeah. graduation. And that scene where she's kind of waiting and watching the, you know, the casserole cook. And she like hears her history books yeah. and texts calling from her that are in storage. and. I think that resonated with me. I'm not a mom, but just that yearning to to do these things that you had once dreamt about and they're just not possible yeah. right now. So Yeah. And how do you balance that? Because you know, I make it clear that she she loves being a mother, um, that she she you know, that she got pregnant soon after graduation. It was not an, it was a surprise, but it was a welcome one. But at the same time, she, you know, she had to make sacrifices. And I think they're sacrifices that she was willing to make. But that doesn't mean there's not this sense of yearning and longing of I, I'm not fulfilling my potential. Um, and I think sort of due to these horrific circumstances, she's forced to sort of tap into that part of herself that had lain dormant for a long time. The other thing, Jason, is there's quite a bit of humor in the books, which I really appreciate. I wanted to ask you about, you know, how how you come about to insert it. But I wanted to read this one sentence that I love from a stranger. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> And this is when she's talking, um, she's referring to her friend Evie, who's someone who has, it appears in both novels, and she's mm -hmm. her, I guess the best way to say would be trainer. She's the one that helped her, um, Rachel, become very physically. Yeah, sort of trainer slash confidant in some way. Um, yeah, sort of twin in an alternate universe in a way. In a way. <laughs> That's a great way to describe her. And Rachel says about Evie, she would have carved out his guts and gone Hannibal Lecter on his sweet meats. <laughs> and I, you know, I laughed through you know, several places throughout the book with these little one-liners. Writing a little, inserting humor into these, you know, thrillers. Well, yeah, I mean, I think humor is part of our everyday life. I think, you know, I, I've certainly read enough books, whether thrillers or otherwise, where it's sort of like, doom and gloom 24 7 and they just i feel like they they weigh on you a little bit and for any person to stay sane these days i mean you know this book was actually finished before the pandemic so it's you know even more so now but you need humor in your life to just stay sane i think a little bit uh especially for rachel who's been to hell and back i mean god if she if she didn't have she she does have a bit of a caustic sense of humor if she didn't have that 
I think she'd struggle a lot more than she does and she already struggles. So I, I think it's just important to me that, you know, if you're going to spend 350 to 400 pages with these characters, ideally in many, many books, there's got to be some humor in there. Otherwise, why do you want to spend time with these people? I mean, how many friends do you have that just have no sense of humor whatsoever? If your friends can't make you laugh, they probably won't be your friends for very long. Yeah, or, or in small doses. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, um, we wanted to also take the opportunity to talk to you about your imprint, Polis, switching directions just a little bit. Listeners of the podcast might remember that one of our favorite books, was it last year, Chris? 2019, 2019 yeah. Um, was Heather Harper Ellett's Ain't Nobody yes. Nobody. Yeah. We loved yeah. that book so much. Me too. So what made you decide to strike out on your own and start an imprint? So I, I've basically been working in publishing uh, on both sides of the desk to some extent since graduating college. I'd worked at, you know, three of the now big five or, or now big four publishers. Uh, and I sort of, you know, worked my way up the food chain a little bit. Then I was working at uh, sort of one of the larger independent presses in uh, Grove Atlantic and helping to relaunch in the serious press. And I guess there was always a sense that sort of I wanted to have more control over what's I published, um, you know, any, you know, I love work in publishing, but you know, if you're part of sort of a big conglomerate, everything has to go through a committee and everything has to sort of be approved by Lord knows how many people who are above you on the food chain. And I know just that, you know, there's certain times when you sort of, you don't want to capitulate, you want to publish what you want to publish and that maybe other people don't want to let you for whatever reason, maybe they're right, maybe they're wrong. So I guess I just always wanted to send to have a go out on my own and do my own thing and see if I could do it. And at the time when I started Polis, I, I wasn't married and I didn't have kids yet. So it's sort of like, now's the time when I don't have these tremendous responsibilities to do this. And if I don't do it now, 10, 15 years from now, I might regret that. So there's a little bit of hubris in that I wanted to have control over stuff. There's a little bit of ambition in that I love this industry, but wanted to really add to it a little bit. And that's sort of where it is. You know, I started Bulls over seven years ago, and I'd love to do both these jobs as long as I can. You know, you just touched on something, you know, the big five, big four now, possibly. Yeah. There's this kind of dichotomy that I hear that publishing is such a small, tight community, but then also mm -hmm. you have these big conglomerates. Can you reconcile those two viewpoints a little bit? I mean, is it such a small, tight community, or does it depend on what genre you're working in? I would say for the most part, it's, it's a pretty tight-knit community. I'd say the dichotomy is in that most of these publishers are owned by much larger international corporate overlords, mm -hmm. whether it's Bertelsmann, whether it's Holtzbrink, you know, whether it's Viacom. So the people that work in the publishing houses, for the most part, you know, we know each other. We have lunch meetings or drink dates or see each other at conventions all the time or at BEA or ALA. Uh, and it's a pretty pretty friendly collegial atmosphere but at the same time you know it's a business and it's the bottom line and every book you publish ideally has to make money and if they don't make money you're gonna be out of a job so you know publishing is a sort of like very old school gentlemanly industry it's all about books and literature but at the same time like you're dealing with not just these larger conglomerates that own the companies but these huge conglomerates that distribute them and sell them whether it's Amazon or Barnes and Noble or Walmart or Target so it is a very weird industry in that you're beholden to these massive multi-billion dollar corporations, but at the same time, you're bonding over somebody at lunch because you both love this brand new 
book of literary fiction that just came out. Yeah, thank you for that. And you also have an, I guess you call it an imprint of Polis, right? The Agora, is that how you pronounce it? Agora? Agora, yes, yeah. Which means open forum, right? Isn't that the yeah. meaning of, of Agora? And you've printed, yes. I read Three Fifth. Oh, great, great. John Vircher. John Vircher. I loved that book. Yes, yeah. And it's winning awards and doing well. Congratulations. Thank you, thank you. Yeah, yeah. That book got nominated for every every award under the sun, pretty much. That was that was our launch title for Agora, and it came out last September. And um, tell us about the purpose of that imprint. So, uh, you know, in addition to writing, I've been part of, sort of, I guess I would say, the crime fiction community for, you know, 15 years now. Um, it encompasses, you know, mysteries and thrillers and every subgenre. And I love that community from the bottom of my heart. But I think anybody who's been a part of that community has sort of noticed that it's been very homogenous for a very long time um, and has not always been open and accepting to other and underrepresented and diverse voices for various reasons. And as a reader, first and foremost, I felt like crime fiction at its best sort of shines a light on society as a whole. And if you're only shining a light on one aspect of society, you're not doing your job. And there'd been a lot of talk about, well, we need to diversify, we need to uh, support other voices. And it felt like just a lot of talk. Um, so I decided to literally put my money where my mouth was and say, we're literally going to devote an entire imprint to promoting diverse voices, underrepresented voices, and sort of um, underrepresented stories. And it's it's gone terrific. I mean, like you said, John Virtue's Three Fists was nominated for every word under the sun. We've published, I think at this point, probably already a dozen books or so. Um, most of them have been have done very well and gotten tremendous reviews. It just felt like that was a a real need. And we were saying, if you write this kind of book, and you, your voice, or your viewpoint is one that has not been told enough, we have a home for you. And I think people respond to that. So I was going to ask a question about pandemic writing. You you mentioned that Hideaway, I mean, you're kind of, it's it's almost double trouble for you now. Hideaway was, the book tour was the beginning of the pandemic. Now A Stranger at the Door is coming out while we're still in the pandemic. So this is obviously going to affect this next book tour. Do you have a big virtual book tour set up now for this? So I have a few events, uh, sort of, I'd say like virtual events with independent bookstores where essentially, you know, we do a Zoom call or Facebook live chat and I talk to one of the booksellers there or I sort of partner with another author who has another book coming around at the same time. It's, it's, I've never done this before sort of virtually, but at the same time, like we've published a lot of books where authors have had to do that. So it, it's the new normal. Um, you know, there's no book tour. It's sort of like talking to people in Houston and talking to people in California and talking to people in Seattle, talking to people in, in Scottsdale. Uh, and sort of then play, do as much online as I can and hopefully readers st still come to it. But yeah, it's funny because I, I wrote A Stranger at the Door. The majority of it was written right after my youngest daughter was born. She's now two. So I sort of, I was writing this book when I had basically a newborn and a young toddler at home. And I remember thinking to myself, like, I can't imagine writing a book under more difficult circumstances. I have two young children at home. And then the pandemic hit and I'm like, that's a joke. Like that was easy compared to this. Um, <laughs> so it's sort of, you know, it's eventually a sinkhole is going to open up under our house and I'll have to write, another, write my next book in the sinkhole. Um, but listen, everyone is healthy so far and that's all I can ask for. It's just very, very strange circumstances. Yeah, yeah for sure. Yeah. Are we allowed to ask about the next book in the series? I know that's very premature since this one hasn't even really come out yet, but I loved both so much. I'm curious to know. Yeah, um, you know, I guess right now we're sort of hoping that 
the books do well enough that my publisher will want more of them. Um, so I sort of have the, I know what the next one will be about and I'm sort of in the position where I, I hope they want to publish it. And, you know, that's, you know, fingers crossed. So, cause I love this character and I want to keep writing it. Well, that's up to listeners then. All right, you listeners. Very much so. Yes. So please, I, I love the Rachel Mara character. I want to keep writing her. So if enough people hopefully uh, buy these books uh, and spread the word, uh, I'll get to. So yeah, it's, it's very much in the, in your hands. How do you balance your time, Jason, as a, a writer and a, you know, the head of this, of books? That must be tricky. It's very tricky. Before the pandemic, I sort of had, I, you know, I worked in an office, we had an office and it was a little bit easier because I essentially had the full day. So I sort of like dedicate, you know, I'd come in in the morning, spend three or four hours doing pull list stuff, responding to emails, working with my distributor, making sure everything was running on time. And then I'd take an hour or two to write. And sort of I'd switch that up depending on if I was working on a book or edits. Obviously with the pandemic, everything has changed because we're not in an office anymore and working from home. We have two small children who, even though they're in school right now, were out of, have been, had been out of school since March. So it was six months with both my wife, my wife and I both work full time. So we had two small children home, children who were you know young enough where like they can't feed themselves, clothe themselves, really go to the bathroom by themselves. So it's like, you know, concentrating on edits and all of a sudden they're like, daddy, I have to go potty. And, <laughs> and you have to deal with that. And you just sort of roll with the punches, but it, it's, it's not easy. Having the girls in, they are in school right now, whether they'll remain in school depends on, you know, the virus, uh, hopefully it stays away, but it's just rolling with an impossible situation and just carving out time where you can. Yeah, for sure. You know, Jason, I have a question about Thomas Mercer, your publisher. Because um, they're an imprint of Amazon. Yes. So, um, and I know sometimes readers don't understand all the ins and outs behind the scenes about how much Amazon does contribute to the book world. You know, then there's the independent bookstores, online sales. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the, the ins and outs of working with Amazon as an independent publisher and then as a writer? How does it all come together for you? I mean, my experience with Amazon has publishing as, as a writer has been really fantastic. Um, I got to say, like, just the, the editorial process itself, it's been the most thorough, detailed editorial process I've ever gone through as a writer in terms of the editing that my editor did. Then we sort of have a developmental, developmental editor who comes on and sort of gives it a fresh look. Then copy editors and proofreaders. I must, by the time Hideaway came in, I probably did at least a dozen full drafts of it. So the process there was, was really fantastic. And they work as sort of a, just a, in a lot of ways, very much a reg, regular trade publisher in terms of their editorial, their cover design, publicity and promotion. Um, obviously, because it's Amazon, there are certain things where, you know, the, the majority of your sales might be digital as opposed to print. Um, you know, there's stores that don't want to stock Amazon titles for, you know, for various reasons. And, you know, so you have to sort of work around that. As an independent publisher, it's sort of, they're sort of very separate. Um, because as an independent publisher, I work with Amazon, the retailer, whereas as a writer, I work with Amazon, the publisher, mm -hmm. and it might not sound like a difference, but it really is a very big difference. So yeah, my experience has been pretty terrific. I mean, they did a fantastic job on Hideaway. I love what they've been doing so far with The Stranger at the Door. Um, you know, I, before I signed with them, they had been publishing a lot of authors that I love to read. You know, Marcus Seiki and Sean Cherkover and Christopher Rice and Hilary Davidson. They had like a, a real murderer's row of talent in there. So I was really happy that they liked this book enough to, to want to publish it. That's great. Thank you for that. Yeah, I know they've been real leaders too and translated 
fiction, yes. which is, you know, something the American public, I think, wants more of. Yes, very much so. Yeah, there's some amazing works that, that are being published around the world that we haven't had access to yet. So, I mean, I, I give them a lot of credit for putting their money where their mouth is. They, they, they have a lot of money to put where their mouth is, <laughs> but they are doing it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's good. You know, readers will benefit from that. So, Jason, as somebody who has such diverse experience in publishing and as a writer, what advice would you give to a writer who's just starting out on their journey? Maybe they have a manuscript under their belt already. I know a couple listeners of ours completed NaNoWriMo back in November. What kind of nuggets of advice would you give to them? I would say first off, and as a publisher, I can't tell you the amount of, and, and we do, we, sub, we accept unsolicited submissions. I think it's important as an independent publisher that we try to open the gates as much as possible and not be a quote unquote gatekeeper. But the amount of queries we get from people saying, hey, I just completed a rough draft of this novel. I'd love for you to publish it. Boggles my mind. I mean, the first thing, as you said, they might, you're, they might have a manuscript. You need to polish that manuscript until you would not change a single word. And I think a lot of writers finish that first draft of the manuscript. And they're like, I'm done. It's over, you know, which is like, you know, it's like, it's like if you have a midterm coming up and studying like one night for it. Uh, so I think that's first and foremost, make sure that you don't just have a manuscript, but you have a manuscript that you would not change a word of. Make sure it's in the best shape you possibly can. Uh, second, understand the industry. I, I, you'd be shocked how many people just sort of don't understand basic things about the industry. Like we're like, for example, Polish Books is a publishing house, but we get half the queries we get of people saying they want us to represent them, not understanding the difference between a publishing house and a literary agent. So it's it's things like that where once you have a manuscript you're happy with, try to understand the industry the best you can because even though writing is a, is creative, publishing is very much a business. And if you're going to publish your books, you are essentially running your own small business and you're doing yourself a disservice if you don't understand that the industry that you're actually trying to get into. So hone your manuscript until it shines, understand the industry, make sure you know the difference between publishing houses and literary agents, be professional in your querying, make sure your query is in tip top shape, always go by the guidelines that a publisher or an agent uh, has on their website, and then just keep working at it. You know, it's odd, there's a very good chance your first book might not sell, in which case write the second one. Um, never get up and keep honing your craft. Great advice all around. I know we've talked to authors that have manuscripts buried in their backyard, you know, their first, <laughs> second, third books that never were published. So I think the never- I, I have those too. <laughs> I, I have those too. Absolutely. And listen, I wrote, I think I wrote two books before my first book was published. Uh, two books that like, of course, when I finished those books, I was like, these are genius. These are brilliant. I'm, I'm the next, you know, so-and-so. And looking back, they weren't very good. They were probably the best I thought I could do at the time, but they didn't deserve to be published. So I think it helped my career in those books not being published because it forced me to keep improving. All in the vein of never giving up. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Wonderful. Yeah. Well, I think we're coming to the end of our time here. Sadly. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I just mean, thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. I mean, I said that the kids are in school right now, so we can go for four hours if you want. <laughs> <laughs> Hey, don't tempt us. Because, yeah. <laughs> like you get into the nitty-gritty of these books. It's funny, you know, um, we just interviewed another author that wrote thrillers, and you have to be really careful when you're talking to an author about books like this, because you really don't want to give anything away. Um, I do want to say to listeners, I loved both of these books so much. Oh, thank you so much. Really interesting. Rachel Marin is this strong female 
single mother who's, you know, making her way in life despite great challenges. And um, there, like I said, there's a little bit of humor sprinkled in. There's a little bit of romance sprinkled in. It's just great, great stories. So thank you, Jason, so much for your writing and for your time today. Thank you. I love that you love the books. And a lot of times you, you might do interviews or promote a new book, and it's not always clear that the person interviewing you read the books. Mm -hmm. So I, I just want to say how much I appreciate they not only read the books, enjoyed them, but really took the time to ask thoughtful questions about them because I love talking about it. So it's, it really means the world. Great. Well, and for listeners, your assignment is to buy the books because we want him to write a third. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Me too. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you so much. Yes. Buy the book, review it, tell your friends, uh, buy it for your pets. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.